there are companies and entities that operate in the state with impunity because people in power aren't willing to be subjected to the kind of scrutiny that would make their work more accountable to the public. And I, I find that disheartening. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. It is the greatest fraud in Vermont's history. The EB-5 scandal has the elements of a true crime movie, a shady grifter, secret meetings, duped investors, complicit regulators, a panicked whistleblower, a tenacious journalist, whispers of blackmail, millions of dollars lost, a dramatic raid by federal agents that brings it all crashing down. In 2012, when Vermont Digger founder and editor Anne Galloway attended a glitzy press conference announcing plans for massive investments in the Northeast Kingdom and promises of thousands of new jobs in the financially depressed region, she smelled a rat. Ever since, she has been like Ahab, patiently and relentlessly hunting the great white whale of Vermont's EB-5 scandal. The latest revelations in the unfolding scandal include a state attorney who worried that top government officials, including Governor Peter Shumlin, knowingly, quote, aided and abetted the fraud. In this Vermont conversation, Ann Galloway offers a primer on the EB-5 scandal, starting from the program's beginnings in 2006 to the most recent stunning developments. Ann Galloway, welcome back to the Vermont conversation. Oh, it's good to be with you, David. You have been peeling the onion of the EB-5 scandal now for years, unraveling uh, the the fraud layer by layer. Uh, but before we dive into the latest revelations, which are stunning, I want to ask you to set the scene a bit, because for those who've not been following this story, dropping into it now can feel a bit like watching a random episode of Breaking Bad without knowing who the good guys and bad guys are and what the heck is going on here. So take us back to the beginning. Tell us when the EB-5 story begins and who the central characters are. Well, what an analogy, Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's more apt than uh, than anybody might wish to think. <laughs> so the whole uh, saga began in uh, 2006 when uh, MSSI, Mount Sansevier International, um, started an EB-5 program at Jay Peak uh, with Bill Stanger, who was the, um, he ran the place, I think he was the uh, general manager at the time. And the EB-5 program was very new to Vermont. Um, uh, Howard Dean had um, authorized the program with the federal government um, a decade prior uh, but it really didn't start rolling uh, until Bill Stanger at Jay Peak um, persuaded the owners to move ahead with this. And the idea was that they could um, bring in foreign investors to um, develop the ski area on the Canadian border. And each uh, individual investor would put $500,000 up in exchange for a return on investment and uh, a visa through the EB-5 program. These were all people from uh, out of the country who wanted an opportunity uh, to get on a path to citizenship in the United States. And so the major players at the time 
were uh, Bill Stanger, of course. And a few years later, another um, developer came on the scene and his name uh, is Ariel Kiros. Uh, and uh, Ariel Kiros uh, is a businessman from Miami who uh, had a condo at uh, Burke Mountain for many years and had skied at Jay Peak and was a friend of Bill Stanger's. And he and Bill uh, worked with MSSI to sell the resort to uh, Aero Kiros in June of 2008. Problem was that Aero Kiros actually didn't have any money of his own. And as we found out later, when uh, federal regulators uh, got involved, Aero Kiros had actually purchased the resort with EB-5 immigrant investor money. So, so that's the whole backfilling Ponzi-like scheme uh, scenario. And we should note that a number of EB-5 projects that are ostensibly legitimate have been done around the state of Vermont. Uh, I think Trap Family Lodge did some. I think some other ski areas did them. So um, it wasn't as if this was a explicitly fraudulent enterprise. What was the weakness, the Achilles feel that Quiros, heel that uh, Quiros and Stenger exploited? Yes, that's a great question. Well, Vermont has a unique program. Uh, it was run by state officials in the Commerce Agency. And the Commerce Agency was obliged to both promote um, the EB-5 projects and to oversee them. Other states have nonprofit uh, EB-5 programs that are run by business people. Uh, Vermont had one of the very few state-run uh, programs. And so the weakness I think that they exploited really had to do with the state of Vermont's interest in creating jobs in, in places like the Northeast Kingdom where uh, there's traditionally been a great deal of poverty and high unemployment. When does Quiros and Stenger, so uh, Quiros purchases this, what year was that? Yes, that was June of 2008. So by, you're saying he has no money, so the fraud begins right then. That's right. How does he put up or show that there's anything to his offer to buy this? Presumably, the, the people that he brought it from, Montsevere, wanted cash. Well, they. so what happened was the EB-5 money, which totaled about um, $25 million, was held in an escrow account um, by the Canadian Ski Resort Company. And that money was transferred to an account held by Ariel Kiros moments before that money was then transferred back to Mount Saint-Sauveur as ca a cash payment for the resort. Let me back up there. Who transferred, explain that uh, sleight of hand again. Yes, <laughs> well, uh, the way it worked was there was an electronic wire transfer of funds from um, an account owned by Mount Sansever International. And that money was transferred into a bank account held by Ariel Kiros. And within a matter of minutes, 
the money went back to Mount San Saber through a separate bank account as payment for the resort. So it sounds like Mount San Saber, the sellers, never got paid in that scenario. Oh, well, the thing is that the money was never actually theirs to use. This was money from the EB-5 investors that was slated for several projects at JPEAK, one of which was the first hotel, Tram House. The second was a partial payment toward the construction of Hotel J. That money was held in escrow, separate from other operating funds and so on that the Canadian resort may have held at that time or had used as profits. So this was a standalone pot of money that they had to transfer to Kiros because he was now the owner of the resort and he was supposed to, to then become the general partner in this relationship with the EB-5 investors to build the developments at JPEAK. So it was a separate pot of money that no one really had a right to. It okay. was the money. It was the whose money? It was the investor's money. It was in the investor's money. Now, for these investors to pony up, these foreign investors, paying on good faith that this would, at the end of this, result in some sort of green card, a citizenship arrangement, um, really a, um, a hall of fame of Vermont politicians was taking trips overseas. So who of the Vermont political class was involved in selling this? Well, it starts from the very beginning uh, in 2008. As soon as um, Kiros gets involved, Bill Stanger begins to make um, more of a push with state officials on approving additional projects beyond the Tram House and uh, Hotel J projects. And he also begins heavily pressuring the Vermont Regional Center Again, this was part of the Commerce Agency, uh, which was supposed to monitor and promote the um, EB-5 projects. He starts to really work with the Commerce Agency and the Regional Center to um, promote um, both Tram House and Hotel J and then uh, another, eventually six uh, projects um, that were funded through immigrant investors. And he starts getting the regional center involved in traveling around the world to solicit investors on behalf of JPEAK. And so this is why, um, for example, in 2009, uh, Governor Jim Douglas goes to Pyeongchang, um, South Korea, to meet with a provincial governor there to talk about their biomedical center and how uh, the patent rights and so on um, and the stem cell technology were going to eventually be moved to Newport, Vermont, where Kiros and Stanger had planned to build uh, ANC Bio Vermont. So Jim Douglas very early on is, is over there in South Korea, pressing the flesh, meeting people, um, then you have James Candido, who is the director of the regional center at the time, uh, under Jim Douglas's administration, who was out in the world um, helping Bill Stanger uh, find investors for 
the whole slate of JPEAK projects. And I should say that um, Bill Stanger really was the front man. Uh, he was out there kind of selling the projects uh, to both to government officials and investors and um, uh, really the state of Vermont. I mean, he was named uh, Man of the Year by the Vermont uh, Chamber of Commerce, I believe, in uh, 2011. So, you know, for him, it was about the glory. Uh, for Kiros, it was about the money. And uh, Kiros was the sort of silent partner in the background who was uh, quietly um, manipulating things and stealing money. Um, so this combination, along with the uh, state officials who were desperate to create jobs in the Northeast Kingdom and who saw a real opportunity to um, bolster the economy of this region, um, that was a lethal combination, I guess. Hmm. How and when did you get wind that all was not well in the Northeast Kingdom? <laughs> oh boy well in 2012 i went to the three-day press conference uh, that was held in burke jay and newport um, by bill stanger and uh, i was just overawed and kind of shocked at the scale of what they were proposing because at that point this is in september 2012 i think it was at literally um yesterday like september 23rd because they held it on bill stanger's birthday this uh <laughs> this three-day press conference and um they were talking about spending a total of 850 billion dollars on projects in the northeast kingdom they had million not billion right i'm sorry million right yeah. 850 million uh they had already spent 250 million um on jp itself and or were in the process of spending that much through the uh, agreements with the state and with investors mm -hmm. and they proposed another um 600 million dollars worth of projects including a number of uh, initiatives that never got off the ground. But you may recall that at one point they wanted to bring in uh, a window manufacturing company. Uh, they talked about a conference and Marina Center uh, on Lake Memphremagog. They wanted to build an airport terminal. They wanted to um, build an office uh, uh, building in, um, in, in downtown Newport. And they had some other ideas, too, that just uh, never took off. Um, but that's what they were pitching uh, back in September of 2012. And when I heard them uh, make this pitch, I thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, that's a question when 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 journalists uh, say that to themselves, there's there's always a story there, whether you get to it or not. There's just something about the doesn't make sense thing that <laughs> some often is real. Uh, it just didn't add up. You know, they wanted to create 10,000 jobs in a region uh, with 60,000 uh, people. Uh, it just seems so over the top that uh, I decided that I really wanted to follow the money. In fact, I drove back to the office from Newport and uh, immediately wrote a proposal to the Fund for Investigative Journalism uh, to uh, take a hard look at um, this proposal. I was so um, just taken aback by the thing. It just never seemed right. And we got the uh, grant, by the way. <laughs> so 
what was uh, you know you're digging you're rooting around what was the first time you kind of hit a little bit of pay dirt that confirmed to you that you were not going up a blind alley well um we hired uh, a, a young reporter from Columbia University um, School of Journalism Investigative Program named Nat Radar Kanchana, uh, who has a last name that sounds like a river, which I love. Uh, he's from Thailand and um, he came to work for us. And I said, Nat, I really want you to focus on JP because there's something not right there. And he started rooting around into the EB-5 program more generally. And he discovered that there was um, a, a project that was not looking very tenable and it was called Dream Life Resorts. It was also an EB-5 um, project. It was pitched by some Canadian um, developers. And uh, he discovered that there were some issues with the main developer, Richard Parenteau, who had been involved in some funny business with developments in Canada. And so he wrote an investigative piece about this that we ran on Digger and within a week, the state of Vermont, the Vermont Regional Center pulled the memorandum of understanding uh, that it had um, committed to with Dream Life Resorts and basically canceled the project. And the question that came up was, well, if you're canceling that project, what kind of scrutiny are you bringing to bear on all the rest of them, including JPEG? Right. And, um, they really couldn't answer that question, which um, this at the time we interviewed Pat Moulton, who was the secretary of the Commerce Agency and others, and they really couldn't tell us uh, why um, that particular project was um, more concerning than some of the things that we were already hearing about JPEG. Uh, there were questions that were raised about um, Aero Keros and his background. We had written a story about um, Techno Technology Tree Inc., which was a company that he uh, owned with Bill Kelly, another principal in the drama. And they had um, hoodwinked a couple of investors in Texas, and we'd written about that. And in light of the scrutiny that the state brought to bear on dream life, we just couldn't understand why that same um, interest in Kyrus's background was, was brought to bear. So that was uh, one dot uh, on the trail, you know, one, one breadcrumb on the trail. But what really um, ignited our investigation ultimately was a series of complaints that were filed with state officials from investors uh, in the tram house, the very first project, who were very disappointed that um, the developers had seized ownership of the hotel without their knowledge and had essentially um, forced them to wait 10 years to get their money back, uh, an additional 10 years. It had already at that point had been um, seven years. And so, what year is this that these investor complaints start appearing? They start appearing uh, in May of 2014. That month was also the month 
that um, ANC BioKorea was, uh, it, the state discovered that ANC BioKorea had been sold at auction by the Korean government. And so internally at the Commerce Agency, they were not only getting these complaints from investors who were basically accusing uh, Stanger and Kiros of stealing their money in their hotel, uh, but they were also getting uh, information out of Korea that uh, really, I think, shook the faith of the regional center officials in the whole JPEAK um, development scheme because they learned that the, pre the owner of ANSI BioKorea had uh, been prosecuted by the Korean government uh, for stealing $11 million from investors there. And the state of Vermont learns this in 2015 or 2014? 2014, yeah. 2014. A good reporter never likes to become the story, but we know from documents ordered unsealed by the court this week that you were intentionally stonewalled by the Shumlin administration. Then Secretary of Commerce Patricia Moulton wrote uh, to, uh, I believe it was the uh, general counsel for the governor, Quote, we are on a public records exemption for any more details out to Anne. That's you. So the details she has is what she will get. Did you realize that you were being stonewalled and misled at that point by the Shemlin administration? Um, yes, I knew that I had been stonewalled and misled from the beginning, uh, starting in uh, July of 2014 when we began in earnest to investigate the JPEAK projects um, because they refused to provide records or they redacted an awful lot. Um, and so, yes, I was, I was aware, but there's also, I, I, I read through these documents over the weekend and it gave me a little bit of PTSD because um, they did hate on me an awful lot personally, I'm <laughs> just saying. And, um, you know, I, I mean, that's part of my job, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, but in such a small state where everyone knows everyone, and I believe there are at least 30 state officials who were involved in um, the doings from 2014 uh, to the present. And these are, it's a small state. Uh, run by very few people, and they have a lot of influence. And uh, so, yeah, I've taken, you know, kind of a personal hit from a lot of those people. So, uh, but I got through it. I read through all of it. And um, yes, the, the detail of how they um, kept records from VT Digger and from the public uh, was a little stunning. And, um, you know, say you a little bit about that and the lens that Vermont Diggers had to go to to get doc to get access to documents. Yes, well, I have placed dozens of records requests trying to find a way to get any information at all out of the state. And so uh, I placed narrow requests and broad requests. I placed requests that I thought would avoid certain exemptions and others that would hit right up against the exemptions. Uh, I tried every which way to Sunday uh, to try to get records at first from the Commerce Agency, then from the Department of Financial Records uh, Regulation, and then finally the Vermont Attorney General's Office. And um, after 
um, the summer of 2015, I was unable to get much at all. And the only reason I was able to get records up to that point was because John Kessler, the general counsel for the Commerce Agency, who's still there, by the way, uh, believed in, apparently believed in uh, mostly following the letter of the law, although um, it, it turns out that he too was looking for exemptions to place on some of the uh, records I was looking for, including, I don't know if we wrote about this, but because um, Alan dealt with this part of the story on my behalf, but- This is Alan Keyes. Yes, Alan Keyes, um, but the uh, SEC investigation was um, full on in the spring of 2015. And I had asked for records pertaining to um, state and uh, federal um, information about ANC Bio and Burke. And um, they wanted to avoid, they meaning John Kessler at the Commerce Agency and um, state regulators and the AG's office wanted to avoid uh, providing Digger with information about that investigation because they felt that if we um, published that, that that would hurt um, uh, Stanger's ability to bring in more investors and the state was determined to build that Burke um, hotel. Uh, and no matter what, you know, the sort of an ends justifies the means kind of scenario, I gather. So, so I, I want to quote from the story that just came out this week, um, because you mentioned um, the Agency of Commerce and Community uh, uh, and Community Development General Counsel John Kessler, um, these latest documents that the court ordered unsealed has him, as you write, sounding the alarm in a series of emails in 2015 to then-Governor Peter Shumlin's staff and the state attorney general's office, warning that the state, by act or omission, quote, aided and abetted fraud. I mean, that's just stunning that you see the rising panic in this uh, attorney who, as you note, really may have been trying to hew somewhat closely to the letter of law or maybe very closely and was seeing the culpability that not only the state, but he personally and others uh, in his position were exposed to by covering this up. Well, it's interesting because John, uh, at that point, was very concerned about the memorandum of understanding between the state and ANC Bio because they, uh, he felt that they didn't um, do their due diligence on um, the ANC Bio Korea project. And so he was very nervous about his role in helping to shepherd those MOUs through. But what happened after that was that he... Um, as you say, sounded the alarm and no one seemed to listen. And um, so instead of uh, involving um, a law firm that had begun to do some review work with a commerce agency to figure out what was going on, and, and I think, you know, Kessler was advocating uh, that they shut these two projects down. And instead of doing that, the Department of Financial Regulation under uh, the direction, apparently, of the governor's office went ahead and reinstated those two projects, which I'm not sure were ever truly suspended anyway. That's something that isn't clear from the records. But Kessler became uh, really agitated when he caught wind of this. 
um, the Commerce Agency was cut out of the DFR's decision-making process. They were working directly with the governor's office. And um, when Kessler found out that they were going to reinstate the two projects, he really had a fit um, because to his mind, from what I can tell from the record, it appeared that um, the state was really going to get itself into trouble and uh, begin to uh, help to perpetuate the fraud by uh, continuing to take money from investors when they knew that Kairos and Stanger were involved in a Ponzi scheme. And, and in March of 2015, uh, state regulators had all of the detail regarding the spaghetti map, all the transactions that uh, Kairos had been involved in. He had leveraged more than $100 million in margin loans against um, against investor funds at one point. He'd stolen $60 million. They knew that. They had all the detail. This is Quiros had stolen this money. Quiros had stolen this money, and the state knew. And this was in a year before the SEC stopped the projects. This was in March of 2015. And Kessler um, was really trying to get them to see that this was not um, a positive path. And so... Yes. The, so really the the crux of the latest findings is to uh, now we're at the point where the state becomes a participant in the fraud and explain what the state did at that point to continue to deceive investors and the public. They did not they did not change the offering documents for investors. So they asked Bill Stanger and Aero Kiros to make some changes, but they weren't, but the changes were not sufficient to warn investors that there was an active SEC investigation, that um, the, that the developers had violated securities laws over and over again, that they'd stolen money. None of that was revealed to the investors and the state did not, make the developers um, disclose that information. In addition, uh, Bill Stanger went out into the world and the state didn't stop him. And he went out and brought in dozens more investors in the Burke Hotel and in ANC Bio, knowing full well that none of these investors would either get their money back or get green cards. In a, in a, um, in a slide presentation that Mike Pichak gave, to the governor's administration, he shows that um, 300 in March 2015. This would have been a little bit further on. It would have been in, I think, well, they knew in, in April of 2015 that investors weren't going to get their money back, nor were they going to get their green cards back. But the details of how many people and which projects would be affected were included in a slide presentation in June of 2015 that Mike Pichak gave to the administration and 346 immigrant investors in three projects that would be ANC Bio, QBERG and Stateside, the condo project, uh, were going to be, um, their, their immigration status was going to be negated according to this uh, slide presentation. And, and just to, to quote directly from uh, the article that appeared in, in Digger, you quote a 2015 internal document from the Department of Financial Regulation, which states, quote, every project appears to be involved in an array of deceptive practices, 
Every single additional penny of investor money that moves through the projects will be lost for good. New investors most certainly will not be issued visas as the SEC will act long before the two-year job creation period ends. Close quote. I mean, that, that is remarkable to see it stated in plain black and white. This is a fraud. All of these people are getting ripped off, and you know it. And this is 2015. So um, the question becomes, why? Why would the state, discovering this fraud, rather than shut it down, step in and become a partner in it? Well, it's hard to ascertain the motivations and it's not um, the end of the day. I can't, you know, really speculate, but from what I've gleaned from the reading and from interviews and so on is that Governor Peter Shumlin um, was determined to make these projects move ahead. And he had a personal relationship with Ariel Kiros. He stayed at Kiros's luxury condo in New York. Um, he had um, a five-hour meeting, apparently, with Kiros in January, right in the middle of the initial investigation. And it would appear from um, documents that we have uh, from the Department of Financial Regulation that he pressured Susan Donegan, the commissioner, uh, to move the projects forward. And in fact, her communications were heavily monitored uh, by the governor's office um, from uh, March of 2015 uh, until the time she left in June of 2016. Um, and it would appear that Burke Hotel, finishing that hotel was a major priority. Liz Miller um, had told the FBI um, that uh, apparently everywhere the governor went, he was being pressured by contractors uh, to finish that project because they hadn't been paid. And um, so the degree to which this was about Kiros and uh, some information that Kiros apparently had on Shumlin. I don't know if you remember, but in the last story, um, the defense attorneys for Stanger point to um, FBI interviews with uh, Pat Moulton, the former secretary of the Agency of, Sec of Commerce and Community Development, who told um, investigators that she saw Kiros uh, go into an anteroom uh, after a meeting with the state with the governor uh, and apparently had a manila envelope of photos. So we don't know what that means. I have no idea what the photos were of, but... Um, what are you suggesting the photos could have been? I don't know. Are you talking like blackmail? Possibly. I mean, that, that's uh, what's suggested by the information, but obviously I don't know. Where do you think we are in understanding the reach of the scandal now? Oh, I don't think we're done yet. Um, I think uh, the day after um, Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, on the 14th, I think it is, the 13th or the 14th, um, the federal court is uh, going to start a two-week pre-sentencing uh, trial in which uh, David Williams and Brooks MacArthur, the defense attorneys for Stenger, are expected to bring in a number of state officials and others who 
have a lot of intimate knowledge of what really happened um, at the time. Also, I expect more documents will come out. Uh, and so there will be more. I mean, I think that this catalog of documents that uh, we were able to um, uh, get access to um, is just the tip of the iceberg. We're only talking about 600 pages here of documents. I think there's a lot more that will come out. And finally, what do you think is the cautionary tale here that comes out of the EB-5 scandal in Vermont? I'm going to say something that maybe your li listeners aren't going to be happy to hear. But I do think that we have a situation in Vermont in which we're not very good about holding each other accountable. And we have a small group of people in power who sometimes are able to move ahead with things without any, like this, without any repercussions. And it's not just EB-5. You know, I've seen this with other investigations we've conducted at Digger, whether it's the Vermont Lottery or um, Kern Hatton or um, OneCare. There are um, companies and entities that operate in the state with impunity because um, people in power aren't willing uh, to be subjected to the kind of scrutiny that would make their work um, more accountable to the public. And I, I find that disheartening because I actually believe in government. I, I think that it's really, government is us, we're in this together. And um, when government is not transparent, it erodes people's faith. And we need each other right now. And we need the state to operate in a way that is above board. And in the case of EV5, we're talking about three governors, two AGs, many, many commerce agency officials. And they're all in on it in one fashion or another. Republicans, Democrats. And I just find that so discouraging uh, that, that we're unwilling to face our... Um, our flaws, uh, you know, as, as a state. Their leaders are unable to face their flaws and come clean on something that is just straight up corruption, in my view. Well, Ann Galloway, uh, congratulations, first of all, on this uh, really landmark and tenacious bit of investigative reporting that you have been doing for many years. And thanks for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Dave, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ann Galloway is the founder and editor-in-chief of Vermont Digger. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.